If you would open your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we get to gather together together and sing great songs that enable us, Father, to worship you and to declare your greatness, your love, your kindness, that remind us, Father, that you do love us and watch over us. Father, we ask that as we continue our worship by opening your word, we pray that you would grant us the ability, Lord, to understand the things that you have given to us here in the book of Ecclesiastes. We pray that you help us to become much more thoughtful about life. The Lord, we will think about your truth, about who you are in light of the life that we live and in light of what we see taking place around us. Father, we are aware that you are sovereign and that you rule over all of the affairs of men. We again readily admit that we do not always understand why things happen the way they do. But we know, Lord, that you can be trusted. And we pray that you would continue to help us, Father, to to have a better grasp on what it does mean that you are sovereign. That, Lord, that will have an impact on our life, the way that we live. We know, Lord, from your word that you are with us. We're grateful for that. We're thankful, Lord, that there will never be a moment in our life where you will abandon us or where that you will forsake us. And so we ask now, Lord, again, that you bless our time. In Christ's name, amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and I'll begin reading in verse 16. Solomon writes, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice... Even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? So I saw that there was nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? The last time that we were in Ecclesiastes, which was last year, we did ask the question, if God actively watches and regulates and determines all the actions of men, why does he allow so much wickedness to exist? Especially in places where judgment and justice should be exercised and dispensed. If God is so good, why is his world so bad? If an all-good, all-wise, and all-loving, all-just, and all-powerful God is running the show, 
Why does he seem to be doing such a miserable job at it? Some have asked this question, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, we attempted to look at some of those things and answer those questions. A couple things as a reminder. Remember that evil is not a thing. It's a wrong choice. It's damage done by a wrong choice. It's not a thing, but it's also not an illusion. The origin of evil is not God the creator, but man. Mankind freely choosing sin and selfishness. Remember that the cause of physical evil is spiritual evil. The cause of suffering is sin. So we looked at the fact that God has a solution. The solution to the problem of evil is His Son, Jesus Christ. The Father's love sent His Son to die for us to defeat the power of evil in human nature. And that's the heart of the Christian story. So again, looking back at the passage that we, that we read... I want to emphasize a couple of things and talk about them. Again, in verse 19, for what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the beast. So all is vanity or all is meaningless. All go to one place. All are from dust and all dust and to dust all return. And then there's the question in verse 21. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? When he asks the question in verse 21, I do believe he's asking the question in this way. So on our own, speaking of, of mankind or the individual, on our own, thinking autonomously. In other words, thinking outside of what God has said. In other words, Eliminating who God is, eliminating what he said. The non-believer does it all the time. So thinking autonomously, no living person can observe or demonstrate a difference between people and animals by watching them as they die. When you look at the way in which, I guess in a sense, just in general, how life is and how death comes to all, as you think about it and you're trying to contemplate the questions of life, it seems the same. This is where PETA comes in. Now, I can't remember why I went to the PETA website, but I did. That's not my normal place to go and read things. But uh, I came across this quote, which I thought was interesting and wrong. It reads this way. When it comes to pain, love, joy, loneliness, and fear, a rat is a pig is a dog, is a boy. That's wrong. Just so you know. That's not what Scripture declares. And I do know that just speaking in general, there is a desire by those who are moving in that direction, as, uh, uh, who buy into the whole platform of PETA, that the idea there is to kind of, I guess, to raise up the way we view animals and animal life and that type of thing. But the result is not that. It's the bringing of man down to the level of an animal. Man is no longer significant, important. It gets to the point that that the logical outcome of that has been seen and experienced, sadly, in, in a few stories, or a few events, I should say. 
I'll never forget listening to, a, to the radio, and they were, there was a, a fire in California, which they have every year. This was uh, at least 10 years ago. I'm not really positive on if it was 12 years ago or 9 years ago, but about 10 years ago. There were some firemen that were fighting the fire, and they ended up becoming trapped. And I, it was between five and seven of them, I, I believe. And they were trapped, and, and they were, they were going to die. And so they, they, uh, the others knew that they could, uh, there, there was a place where the fire was that, that they, could, they could put it out, at least temporarily, through the planes and helicopters that, you know, grab those big buckets of water. And they could radio to these men, and they could, they could carve out a path for them to escape. So the planes were sent uh, to the nearest water reservoirs to get the water. And I don't know which government agency did this, but they were stopped from doing that. They said, you can't get water from the closest water reservoir because there's a fish in that water reservoir that's rare and is protected. And there's a chance that when you scoop up that water, you'll scoop up some of those fish. So they had to go to another place, which elongated the flight by, I think, uh, a total round trip of 45 minutes. And as a result, all those firemen died. Because we might kill some fish that were endangered. Now, I'm not against protecting certain animals. I'm not against that. I, that's fine. I, I think we should. But when you come down to that, I think that was wrong. Period. And those men obviously lost their lives, their families devastated. And what is angering about that is it could have all been prevented very easily. That try and save the fish another day. And if that particular fish goes extinct, well, sometimes that happens. There's been animals that have gone extinct, thousands and thousands and thousands of species for different reasons why. And we're not minimizing that, but that's what that leads to. So man, on his own, apart from God's revelation, that's what it leads to. It leads to that. You see, they, they die, and there are those who would say, well, hey, the fish, the life of those fish is just as valuable as the life of men. See, those who accept what the Bible says, or even non-believers who at least, they may not know where it comes from, they borrowed the ideology from the scripture would say, no, no, human life is more valuable than the life of a fish. Now, non-believers may not be able to explain why, but we understand from the scriptures that man is the only creature that's created in the image of God. And so therefore, we are unique among all of God's creation. Um, and so we are not considered to be animals, even though at times we may act like animals, we are not animals. In fact, we will say at times, I can't believe you're behaving that way. You're behaving like an animal. Because humans should act like humans, and there's a difference. So we need help. We need God's revelation. Because on our own, we don't come, up to the right, come out with the right conclusions. Death seems to negate all the differences between people and animals. We are endowed with a sense of rationality, a sense of, et- of eternity, uh, injustice demonstrates our finitude, mortality and ignorance of God's plan, all those things are there, but as, Sol- as Solomon thinks about these things and put these things together, that's why he ends up saying here at this portion, 
I saw that there was nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what would be after him? So it seems that in this section here, as Solomon writes, it's almost as if there's no skepticism, there's no Epicureanism. The sentiment is there are injustices, there are anomalies in the life of men, and in the course of this world's events, which we cannot control or alter, these may be righted and compensated hereafter. Meantime, man's happiness is to make the best of the present and tearfully to enjoy what providence offers without anxious care for the future. So remember that the other term we use for Solomon here is Kohelet. That's, that's not, you know, even though in some of the translations it says the preacher, that's not the best translation. He's one who kind of gathers information and dispels them. And Koheleth is a word that means that. So Koheleth here continues to express the problems that he encounters in life. As he looks at life, as he thinks about life, here he thinks that one would expect to find even the law courts to be the place where justice is served. And of course he finds that there's wickedness there. And then we saw that in the beginning when we read this, that you know, the, the, there was an expectation of justice, there was, there was wickedness in the place where there was, should be righteousness, there was wickedness. There's no place for judgment, and this problem is intensified by the issue of death. So he's recognizing there should be justice here, there's wickedness, and then he's looking at the fact that everybody dies, and animals die, and he's trying to figure this out, and and what does that mean for our life? And it looks like that death is just the end, and that's it. And if death is just the end, then humans are no better than animals. And there never will be a time for judgment, meaning there will never be a time for justice. Now, when you take a step back and you look at the Bible as a whole, we know that there indeed will be a time for judgment. There will be a time for justice. At the consummation of history with the return of Christ, there will be judgment and restoration. Now, I want to just give you a quick word on judgment just for a moment, because I think judgment gets a bad rap. A lot of non-believers don't like judgment. They don't like when Christians talk about judgment. Sometimes we don't like to talk about judgment. It's such a negative thing. And we don't, want, we don't want anyone going around judging anyone. Well, when it comes to judgment, remember this. Even though most everyone is against it, because it seems to be just so negative, think of it this way. Because there is judgment, that means that we, because we're often talking about human beings, are being held accountable for all we say and do. Because it matters. If there is no judgment, then there's no accountability. If there is no accountability, then it doesn't matter what we say or do. But if it doesn't matter what we say or do, then we don't matter. Now, that's a depressing thought when you think about it. That one, or that I, or that you, don't matter. But without judgment, we have what we have. People in the world treating each other as if they don't matter. doesn't sound much like love, even though there's a lot of talk about love. So I guess you could say, in a sense, that judgment is the back door to love. That if you, if you have love and you don't have judgment, then you don't have love. Because, there's no, again, there's no accountability. There's no accountability. Then it doesn't matter what you say or do. And if it doesn't matter what you say or do, then you don't matter. Isn't that how we treat people? If there's someone who you have no respect for, and they're saying whatever they're saying, and to you it doesn't matter, it's because they don't matter to you. 
On a personal level, that's true. Well, you imagine if all of society is living that way. So then when it comes to God, all of a sudden, people don't want there to be judgment. They really don't want there to be an accountability. But when you have that, you cannot stop how that's going to play itself out. We don't have the power to do that. And so even though we may think, or some people may think, that it's a nice thought that we can live in a world where there's no judgment. Of course, I guess you could do that if there's no evil. So you still have that kind of a sticky problem. You know, you've got evil. But if we all try to live in a world where we just love and care for each other and there's no judgment, well, you need to know what that's going to lead to. It's always going to lead, not every single individual, but it's going to always lead to individuals and the value or the worth of individuals being diminished. And because it's diminished, then it's going to be diminished in our eyes and then we're going to treat them accordingly. And what we end up doing is what the rest of the world does. We treat people that we like well and people that we don't like for whatever the reason, we don't treat them well. And again, that goes against what the scripture says. So back to thinking about now what Solomon is writing about and what he's seeing. Because again, he sees that there's this wickedness. And we've talked before. You know, I've, I won't go into it again. I've told you about Emmanuel Kant and, and you know, his scenario and trying to deal with what it is that gives life meaning, which happens to be perfect justice. But the only way you can have that is to have life after death and an all-knowing judge who's all-powerful who can judge right from wrong. Because we all know that what Solomon observes is true. In some cases, and maybe in many cases, depending on what country you live in, where justice should be taking place, there's a great deal of wickedness. Where there should be righteousness, there is wickedness. So, and what is the answer to that? And if they die... As Solomon observes, it seems, well, they've, they've gotten away with it. And so it seems then that if death, again, if death is the end, then why try so hard to do right? It just doesn't matter. If I can get away with it, of course, what we believe is you can't get away with it. Because we believe in God. We believe in, in life after death. We believe that there is a judgment. And we believe that it matters. And for the one who has, who it seems has gotten away with mistreating, uh, let's say gravely mistreating other people. And maybe to the point that he or she gravely mistreated others and no one else was even aware of it. And only they knew about it and their victims. We can rest comfortably because we know that they will get their due because of who God is. Herman Bavnik wrote a book. Uh, it's a very large book called Reformed Dogmatics. That could be a little boring. Um, you can tell that by the title. Um, it's not necessarily boring, depending on what you're interested in. But he says this. After the resurrection comes the judgment, an event pictured in the Old Testament as a victory of the Messiah over all of Israel's enemies, but also described in the New Testament as the judicial work of Christ, in which he judges and sentences all people in accordance with the law God gave them. So let me read to you from the book of Revelation, chapter 20. And I'll begin reading in verse 11. And I'll read through verse 1 of chapter 21. And it reads this way. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, 
according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And then if you jump to verse 5 of chapter 21, he says, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. We all long for that. We don't long for this because we just want to see God judging people and seeing them suffer. We long for this because we desire that those who do wrong are held accountable and judged. We have a sense within us that that is a right thing. We even get angry when you read through history. and Let's say you're reading about World War II and all the atrocities that took place. And you, you look at the life of Hitler and then at the end that he committed suicide. For us, that, that we hate that because he wasn't really held accountable for what he did, for what he caused. We would say it's the coward's way out. He never faced up to what he had done and the great evilness of what he had done. But he will. He didn't get away with anything. In fact, there were things that he did and it was accountable for we don't even know about. He'll be held accountable for all those things. There will be a proper punishment for that. At the same time, again, as we understand, we're not saying that we're better than he is. We are just the recipients of God's grace and mercy. We, we, see, we deserve to be held accountable in that way as well. But Christ took my place. And God held him accountable for everything that I did. And so we long for this. And if this, if this is untrue, what I read, then I do think those who are trying to think autonomously come to the right conclusion, which is everything is meaningless. It just doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if you do kind things. Doesn't matter if you do evil things. You just live for yourself and get all you can, whatever that is. Because life is, in the end, truly meaningless if there is none of this. The renewal of creation that the scripture speaks about follows the final judgment. According to the scripture, the present world will neither continue forever, nor will it be destroyed and replaced by a totally new one. I believe that instead it will be cleansed of sin and recreated, reborn, renewed, and made whole. Biblical hope is rooted in incarnation and resurrection. It is creational, this worldly, visible, physical, bodily hope. The rebirth of human beings is completed in the glorious rebirth of all of creation. The new Jerusalem, whose architect and builder is God himself. The final rest of God's children is not to be conceived as inaction. His children remain his servants who joyfully and in diverse ways serve him night and day. So when we look at life and we're trying to figure out what it is that gives meaning to life, what is it that can bring about meaning in life? It is summed up in those two main words, the incarnation and resurrection. The incarnation, again, representing that God physically intervened in the life and the history of mankind. Because left to ourselves, we were already condemned and our future was hopeless. And we were helpless in every way. And so then God became man. But because of the curse of sin, because death is a reality, 
there's also resurrection. This God also intervenes in life, in our lives, and there's a resurrection. And so we'll be raised to a new life, and there is this hope that we have in God that there's going to be this, a world in which sin has been eradicated. That's going to happen. And we get a taste of that because we become citizens of that place now as we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ. Karl Barth says this. I don't quote everything Karl Barth says, but I quote this. Though death is our last enemy, it cannot do what it likes with us. God has appointed it to its office, but he can also disarm it. For with death, the Lord of death is also present. To be sure, he will be present as the judge and avenger, as the one who causes us in death to reap what we have sown, as the one whom we must fear even now and then still more. If death has such terrors for us, it is because in death we shall finally fall into the hands of the living God. Faith learns to live with seeming inconsistencies and absurdities, for we live by promises and not by explanations. We can't explain all of life, but we must experience life, either enduring it or enjoying it. We must never be satisfied with ourselves, but we must be satisfied with what, with what God gives to us in this life. So because of the hope that we have in Christ, we are given a unique freedom, a unique psychological and emotional freedom that the world is desperately searching for. We are free from the tyranny and the fear of death. For we know that's not the end. And we are free from the hopelessness and the helplessness and the meaninglessness of life because those who do not know God, that is their life. In the end, their life has no meaning. Because again, no matter how many great things that they accomplish, what does it matter? I was talking to a guy once, uh, a young man, and, and he was saying that, I, I forget how we got on the, on the topic, but he was telling me that you know, he, was, he was wanting to make a mark in, for himself, have a big impact on the world, and he wanted people to remember him. We were talking, and I said, well, I said, I guess that's good. You know, it's good to be ambitious. So you want people to remember you. He says, yes, I want to be remembered like, like some of the greats. I say, well, most of the great ones that I remember were greatly evil. But uh, nonetheless, um, I said, uh, so let's say you accomplish that. What does it do for you? He said, what do you mean? I said, well, when you die, if your name is remembered for a thousand years, what does it do for you? He said, well, I don't know. I, it does something for me now. I go, how is that? It can't do anything for you. are not famous. You haven't made your mark yet. So what does it really add to your life? I said, it, it, I said, the idea of it can feed your ego for a while, but when you die, your ego dies. I said, really? He says, well, when you say it like that, it just sounds dumb. I said, we're getting somewhere. <laughs> and so what we need to, so when it comes to that, whether someone makes a big mark on life, it, terrific. But what we as believers understand is that it's not just supposedly the big things in life that matter. What he is telling us here and what, what we bring to the table when we look at what Solomon is saying is that all of life does matter. 
But it matters because of these things that seem at times to be unrelated. Incarnation, resurrection, judgment, accountability equals meaning. And therefore it matters. It matters what we do. It matters that you're honest. It matters that you're kind. It matters that you help others. No one else may even see it, but it matters. It matters to God, who's the judge, to the one who rewards, to the one that we do this in honor of. God empowers the upright to embrace life all the more fully and enjoy the gift of each moment of goodness present to them. There is a recognition that while life is beyond one's control, every single moment is for the taking by the gift of God. And so that is the attitude, that is the approach that we as believers are to take. I pray that we'll live that way and perhaps our unbelieving friends will want to know why it is that we have such a great zest for life. How is it that we can truly wrap our arms around and enjoy every single moment of life? It's because we're free from all of these things that the curse of sin has brought into the world and because our life continues. In fact, even if you think about relationships, if the relationship you have with somebody that you love dearly, if death is the end, what does it really matter how well you develop that relationship? I think that the reason why it matters is because the relationship that I have with those that I love is going to continue. We're going to be in heaven. It's not that I'm going to ruin that somehow through sin, because all that's going to be dealt with by God. But the point is, is that there's not an end to these things. God has created these things for us, for our benefit. And so we are to rejoice now as well as rejoice in the future. We get a glimpse now of a small taste of what it's going to be like. And we need to share that with others. As I've said to you many times before, that in the world around us, there are many, many, many people who are pretending to be happy. There are many, many people who are pretending to be content with life. This is not some big conspiracy. This is not, again, some negative view because we think we're better. It's not that. It's just that we understand because of what the Scripture says, because we've experienced it ourselves, because we can see what others are experiencing, that, that again, apart from God, there really isn't anything to kind of build your life on. There's nothing to latch hold of. And so that's why then even when you speak to individuals who appear to have it all together or appear to be happy, we still need to speak to them, really, the gospel and how it is that the gospel not only has saved us but gives us great meaning in life and how much we enjoy life and how we're able to forgive. They need, they need to hear us talk about those things. Because oftentimes what will be happening is, is they may be on the outside looking at you and shaking their head in agreement and even acting as if, like it's like, well, I'm glad that's good for you, or somehow maybe it's not important for them. But on the inside, for many of them, they're screaming, I wish I had that. There's no way this is true. They're a phony. They're lying to me. And I know they're lying to me because I'm living a lie myself. There's all kinds of things going on. And we need to reveal to them the truth of the Word of God. There is a world of hurting people. But it's not just the people that you see that are hurting. There's many others. Because we put on the facade and Solomon is seeing right through all of that. And he sees it for what it is. And he comes to these stark conclusions. It gets better at the end, but he pursues all these things with all of his heart, all of his mind, and all of his soul. And he, you know, he's, not, uh, he's not trying to make it look better than it is. 
And so again, the call to us as believers is to live genuine lives. And when we experience sorrow, I would say we need to sorrow deeply, but not with despair. But we can sorrow with no shame. We can sorrow with understanding. And when we experience joy and happiness, we can experience that very deeply as well. It can be experienced unhindered, not worrying about the fear of, as some people live their life, well, you know, I try not to enjoy my life too much today because the other shoe is going to drop. Well, you're right. The other shoe is going to drop. However, I'm going to ignore that and I'm going to enjoy it now. When it drops, it drops. And that's what God gives us, the freedom to be able to do. Let's pray. Father, heaven, we thank you again for life. And really, Father, for the great life you've given us. Whether, Lord, we are wealthy or poor, whether we have many friends or few, whether our families are large or small, Father, you have given us life and a great life and given us the means to enjoy life. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us. Help us, Father, to live life as if we actually know you. To live life as if we believe there really is a resurrection. To live our life as if the incarnation is true. And it has affected us. May we, Father, share the marvelous news of our salvation with others. And may we be able to find various ways to communicate the gospel of Christ with them. Because, Father, despite all the wonderful pursuits that man can pursue, and there are a great many marvelous gifts that you've given to us, Father, those things in and of themselves cannot be the final answer. Because in the end, they're just empty. But Father, in the world in which we live in, that has been given to us by you and saved by you, those things become just great things that we get to participate in and enjoy. Because they are, they are a, a means, so to speak, to enjoy your goodness to us and your attributes. I do ask, Lord, that if there are any here this morning who they are not able to experience the fullness of life, they have never been able to experience the greatness of what this life has to offer. I pray, Lord, that in your kindness and in your patience, you would reveal to them that the answer that they are looking for is not in things and not in what we possess and not in what others think about them. But it's in a relationship with you where you have the power and the right and the willingness to forgive us of our unrighteousness and our foolishness and to give to us not only life, but that blessed hope of an enduring future with you and those that you love. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help them to wrestle with the truth of these things and they would come to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ and that they would believe. Father, we thank you. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.